Hey, welcome back to The Urban Monk. Dr. Pedram Shojai here today talking about sugar. Why? Because we're in the holidays and uh, it is all around. I gotta say, I've been craving sugar and I don't really like sugar that much. It's just everywhere. Some of it might have to do with serotonin levels and, you know, the, sorry, I'm being hemispherically um, prejudiced here. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, you know, things are getting dark and, you know, your body wants to hibernate and you want more carbs or you crave more carbs. Uh, so uh, today, Gary Taubes is my guest. He has written a, a very comprehensive book, The Case Against Sugar. And we're here to talk about the history of sugar, uh, what it does to us, and why we should probably avoid it. Hey, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Pedro. Yeah, great, man. So you have been doing a lot of investigative work in health for a long time. How'd you land on sugar? Okay, well, yeah. Um, the my first two books in nutrition. So again, I, I'm an I think of myself as an investigative journalist. Um, I just stumbled into nutrition science because there was a lot to investigate, and a lot of uh, second, third, fourth-rate science. Um, my first two books implicated refined grains and sugars in total in obesity and diabetes. And whenever I lectured on this, somebody would say, well, if you're blaming sugar on refined grain, or you're blaming obesity and diabetes on refined grains, what about Southeast Asia, which was sort of a rather large black swan? Um, so the obvious explanation for why you might have a popular, if you blaming, you know, highly processed grains, um, and sugars for obesity and diabetes, and you have a population that consumes highly processed grains but doesn't have obesity and diabetes, maybe it's the sugar. And one of the things I knew from my early work was that in 1960s, when Japan had levels of diabetes similar to what we had in the U.S. in the 1860s, they had sugar consumption similar to what we had in the 1860s. And then you have all these biological mechanisms that link ambiguously sugar to this condition known as insulin resistance, which is the sort of fundamental defect in type 2 diabetes and is uh, the highly suspect as a mechanism for obesity. And so there was just a lot of reasons to focus on sugar, and I decided I would, that's what I would do. It's interesting, when we were making the Origins movie, there were um, uh, a few people that had kind of made this case that sugar became kind of the basis of the slave trade um, in the right. New World. And so it was driving this, this insatiable appetite, probably because it's addictive, uh, uh, in Europe. And so there was all of these African slaves being brought into the plantations, not just in America, but the Caribbean and everywhere. And, the sh you know, sugarcane was being grown. And so, you know, now, you know, slavery has been abolished, you know, for the most part. But we're all addicted and we're all slaves to sugar. So it's, it's like right. come full circle. Um, and well, so historically... Um, has, has anything changed? I mean, we're still, we're still producing sugar cane, but now there's all these sugar substitutes out there as well. Well, the, the way sugar, sugar crept into our diet in various waves, and the one you pointed out with the um, founding of the sugar sort of colonies by the, the UK and, 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 and France and uh, the, the uh, 
um, Scandinavian populations in, in um, the Caribbean in the 16th, 17th century, you start getting this wave of sugar heading to the U.S. and to Europe that's uh, in this triangular slave trade. It's funny, in the U.S. we tend to think of slavery as related to cotton, um, but it was driven by the sugar industry, as you pointed out, some 12 million uh, black Africans uh, were forcefully removed from Africa to the Caribbean, and, and many of them died in the uh, doing what is just horrible manual labor, which is the, the you know, cutting cane and, and refining it. Um, in the late 19th century, you get the Industrial Revolution beginning in the, the, you know, the turn of the 19th century, which makes it uh, very inexpensive to refine sugar. And then the beet sugar industry takes up in the 19th century, spurred by Napoleon. Um, by 1850s, you've got the founding of the, uh, the chocolate industry, the candy industry, the ice cream industry, and then 30 years later, the soft drink industry, which are all sort of dedicated, if you think about it, to providing sugar for children. So it used to be too expensive for kids for the most part. And then by the 19th century, what we're doing is we're, we're offering sugar to children and women while the men are getting cigarettes and alcohol for primarily. And then um, the sugary beverage, the sugared cereal industry comes along about 50 years later, delayed by um, cereal industry nutritionists. So cereal started as a health food. And so the Kellogg's and Post and all these big cereal uh, manufacturers had in-house nutritionists who thought that sugar was bad for you. So they sort of delayed the inevitable by about 50 years. And then finally in the 1960s, you know, breakfast gets transformed into sort of a low-fat version of dessert. And now children in particular and are just getting mainlining sugar in doses the likes of which the human race never experienced. And then the argument is, you know, that 20, 30 years later, you see this explosion in obesity and diabetes rates, you know, may not be a coincidence. <laughs> I mean, some of this could possibly be chalked up to being a testament to the efficiency of capitalism. <laughs> it's, certainly, it's certainly a story of a capitalistic success, yes. Um, it really is, to the point where there's no moral safeguards. Uh, and it has now gone way beyond any point of kind of measure in insanity where now children are having sugar cereals every day. So let, let's talk about what this does to the kids because uh, it's, I, I'm appalled at the fact that these things are still legal, right? Yet <laughs> it, it is an enormous industry and there's people right now as we speak buying some sugary cereals for their children. Right. I mean, it's, I, you know, again, I don't, you were probably the same way. I mean, some parents just wouldn't go there. My, I was raised by a mother who wouldn't. I, frosted flakes were not going to cross our door. And this was 1960s, you know, suburban New York. Um, but clearly there are people who don't, <laughs> uh, that the food industry can prey on. I mean, sugar is the cheapest calories. That's one of the reasons why it's, it was such a massive success because you can make the most amount of money marketing it. Um, it's funny, back in the 1930s, there were various, you know, I've got quotes from a, a Wall Street uh, financier from George Orwell, famous quotes about basically when people are really poor, 
Like in the midst of a depression, the one thing you can sell them and you can make money on is, you know, you market to their vices and you sell them things that give them pleasure. Because when you're really poor, you need pleasure in your life. It's not like, you know, they say rich people, this is what Orwell said in effect, that, you know, rich people can find pleasure anywhere and they can live on Ryquist and, you know, orange rinds and be content that they're making themselves happier. But when you're poor, you need some pleasure. Mm. And cigarettes, alcohol, caffeine, sugar are the acceptable ones, were the acceptable ones. Now we're down to sugar because the others have slowly been sort of demonized. Um, and now, you know, I come along as the Grinch trying to push the demonization of sugar as well. But well, I, think, I think Starbucks might, might be arguing that, that caffeine is still on the menu. And if you look at the um, tremendous success of caffeine as a drug, yeah, right. My, mine's actually got water in it, but you know, I am guilty of drinking tea. Um, caffeine's an incredible drug and it fuels our system as well. But you know, yeah. one by one, we're starting to recognize that none of this is really good for us. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the caffeine data, I pay attention to this stuff and it's like everything else ambiguous, but there's as much ambiguous evidence that it's good for us as there is that it's bad. Mm. Um, even while well, sugar is interesting because it was, it's got these, you know, they were described a hundred years ago as by chemists as these remarkably stimulating properties. So as early as 1916, biochemists realized that we metabolize sugar quicker than particularly the fructose portion of sugar, half of the sugar molecule. We metabolize it quicker than other carbohydrates. So this idea that the sugar industry used to market that it's quick energy is literally true. And you had this period in 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, where sports coaches would experiment with sugar as a performance-enhancing drugs mm -hmm. like that. Harvard rowing team, and I think I found one article in the Times about the Yale soccer team. Um, I forget if it was Yale or Columbia that was experimenting with sugar around you know 1913 or so, and they 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 thought it worked even though they lost five to one to Penn. Um, but they the, felt uh, so good about it. <laughs> they felt so good. So it had these sort of, sort of stimulating properties, mm. but simultaneously. The question is, like a many performance-enhancing drugs, does it have long-term deleterious consequences? So you take it for a race, or you take it for practice, or you take it to pass a test, and it's beneficial. And I think we all had that experience where a sugar rush, usually with caffeine attached, got us through some exam periods in college. But then simultaneously, once you're hooked, and it's an everyday thing, you've got these long-term consequences and the scare one scary thing is that you could pass those cons if you're a woman you could pass them on to your children while you're pregnant it's uh, one of the metaphors I used in my last book was it's, it's kind of like deficit spending if you don't have the money you can borrow it but you know there's there's a price to pay and so it will yeah. I mean listen I could, I could have sugar and coffee right now and, and dramatically alter my mood and probably enhance my performance for about three hours uh, okay. and then tonight's gonna suck Right. And, and that, yeah. that, that's really, you know, so it's that delayed uh, hit, you know, sometimes you got to get through the day. But, you know, if you live a life in a way where every single day you're taking that drug to kind of bump you to the next, you know, gratification, you're not living a balanced life. So you, you mentioned something about paying it forward into the next generation that I don't think many people know about. If a mother is having sugar, what happens to the next generation? 
Well, so this is, and again, this is speculation. And uh, so I have two chapters in the book that are called the If Then If Then Problem, Chapter One and One, and the If Then Problem Two. So the, the thesis of the book is that sugar is the fundamental. It's a dietary trigger of this condition called insulin resistance. So that's the sort of precursor to obesity. Well, it goes along with obesity. It's a precursor to diabetes and heart disease. The CDC says <clears throat> today around 75 million Americans have what's called metabolic syndrome, which means they're insulin resistant and they're at high risk for heart disease and diabetes. Um, sugar is a likely or the likely cause of it. That's the argument I'm making in the book. So you consume sugar, you have this metabolic, this cluster of metabolic abnormalities that go along with being resistant to the hormone insulin. So now your blood sugar is elevated, you're over secreting insulin, you've got what's called dyslipidemia, which means instead of just high cholesterol, you've got a whole slew of sort of lipid problems or what they're called. Um, your bl uh, blood pressure is elevated and again, you're on your way towards getting diabetic. So now if you're a woman, you get pregnant the fetus is going to see basically its fuel supply, the blood sugar crosses the placenta in proportion to the blood sugar in the mother. So it's going to see a high blood sugar environment. And it's going to, as it's developing its pancreas, it's going to overdevelop insulin secreting cells in the pancreas in preparation for what it sees as this high blood sugar environment. Um, and this is well documented. This isn't crazy speculation. This is, you know, textbook science. We're, we're on solid ground so, still. We're still on solid ground. So the mothers who are obese or diabetic or what's called gestationally diabetic where they manifest diabetes while they're pregnant will have babies that are born bigger and fatter. And this is the reason why. And they will, and this is one reason why uh, when women get pregnant, they get a glucose tolerance test to see if they're becoming diabetic because you don't want this to happen. They're also at higher risk of having birth defects and, and complications in pregnancy. And when the kids grow up, they're at higher risk of becoming obese and diabetic adults. And this is really well documented in a population, Native American population in Arizona called the Pima where they've been studied in a longitudinal study since the 1960s. And women who are diabetic when they're pregnant have a 30-fold greater risk of giving birth to children who will become diabetic as adults than women who are healthy and stay healthy through their pregnancies. So you can imagine a scenario basically where each generation of mothers getting these high sugar diets gives birth to a generation of children who are more predisposed to become obese, diabetic, and insulin resistant when they hit adulthood and get pregnant themselves. And so you have a sort of vicious circle that gets a vicious cycle that gets worse with each generation. Mm -hmm. um, and you have researchers talking about this possibility in the literature. And again, we address it with the glucose tolerance test during pregnancy, but um, nobody's ever really discussed the population, the real the implications, and particularly so if, these, if the initial insulin resistance is caused by sugar. 
And like I said, there are populations where you see obesity and diabetes just explode from the time, you know, you have Western diets come along and then within 10 years you see sort of the immediate effects in the population and the adults and then the children with each succeeding population that love the age at which they get diabetes gets lower the age at which they get obese gets lower yeah. so it's 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 a frightening scenario but it's one that has to be discussed yeah and, and in that there's also another layer that um is getting some some discussion but not enough is that the bacterial cultures or colonies that thrive under a high sugar diet aren't necessarily the ones that are the greatest for our epigenetic expression, aren't the ones that will help us with immunomodulatory effects the way that uh, kind of a, a native, uh, how shall I say, kind of original type of colony would. And right. so now we're starting to push kind of transgenerational bad bacteria down the timeline as well, and that's leading to all kinds of other things. As, and, and, and so that's just, that's so cutting edge, there's a lot of people looking at it, but we don't know what the hell to even make of it yet. Well, that's the thing, there's a lot of, you know, one of the, the subtexts of my research is that the nutrition and sometimes it's not just a subtext, um, nutrition and obesity research community screwed up big time. So I have a, a chapter in the sugar book called The Gift That Keeps On Giving, which is about this idea that obesity is an energy balance disorder. So you get fat merely because you take in too many calories. And this is 100-year-old thinking, and it ignores, well, 100 years of medical science that came after. But because it ignores the entire field of endocrinology, which exploded in the 1920s, the science of hormones and hormone-related diseases, um, the research community, the argument I make, just com sort of completely botched the story with obesity and, and by association diabetes. So they came up with this kind of inanely simplistic idea that it's just a calorie balance issue and some people get fat because they take in too many calories and others don't. And the hypothesis couldn't explain anything, which is what you want a hypothesis to do is explain as many phenomena about you know, around the subject as you can. And it also turned out to be a failure in terms of preventing these disorders. So as we got obesity and diabetes epidemics that exploded in the past 30, 40 years, where it's just clearly the case that something dramatic has happened, now people are looking for explanations other than we screwed up. Right. So one of the one of the ways to deal with it is you say, well, it's a multifactorial complex problem and nobody could solve it because it's so complex. Or you say, hey, look, this gut biome stuff came around. Maybe that's a solution. So if it's all in the gut biome, we don't have to say we missed. We screwed up. We just we needed a new technology now that we have a new technology the ability to you know sequence the, the the genomes of these gut bacteria and see what species are really living in our guts now we can solve the problem hmm. um so there's a lot of focus on that the point i make in the book is that you see this it's called dysbiosis you know this this um uh these uh, dysfunctional gut bacterial populations in association with obesity and diabetes and Western diets. And so clearly, that with the simplest possible hypothesis is it's also caused by whatever it is in the diet 
that causes the other diseases. We don't actually know where it falls in the, the causal pathway. You know, did, did, did first the gut bacteria get, you know, the, the, those populations get skewed and then whatever they do cause the obesity and diabetes, do they all happen simultaneously? Do they feed back on each other? We don't know. But we know that it goes that they're all associated. And there was a British naval researcher named Peter Cleave who wrote some very insightful research on this stuff in the 60s, 50s and 60s. And he said, look, you know, one of the what we're now calling Western diseases, these diseases that associate with Western diets, we've got obesity, diabetes, heart disease, probably cancer, possibly Alzheimer's and gout and tooth decay okay tooth decay is like the canary in the mine you give sugar and white flour to any diet and within you know five years you'll see tooth decay in the kids and then you'll see obesity diabetes you know 10 20 years after that so the simplest hypothesis whatever causes the tooth decay also causes everything else <laughs> and he said it'd be crazy to think that the Foods that cause havoc to the bacteria in our mouth don't cause havoc all the way down the GI tract. Right. So again, you're still implicating sugar and white flour because that's clearly the issue with tooth decay. Which we know, but, which we which, know from, from years of dental science, we know that this causes caries. Exactly. So again, so the argument is, I don't know what role, there's a long-winded way to say the dysbiosis is fascinating. And they, as you put it, there's a lot of smoke right now, and it's hard to see where the real science is, or a lot of yeah. noise, we don't know where the signals are. But most likely, whatever's causing that is the sugar and the white flour, and that's what we have to worry about. We just had uh, Joel Kahn, a, a cardiologist on the show, um, and he's talking about the oral bacteria that um, are correlated in, in heart disease, and you can do a carotid artery. Um, you know, you, once you open up a carotid artery, you start to pull the bacteria that are in the plaque, and you could basically line them up and line up with what's in the mouth, and you know, they, they, they line up perfectly, and so you know, some of the things that are implicated there, Listerine, and some of the you know, triclosan, some of the things that are found sure. in the traditional kind of dental hygiene care community, which is also backwards as, as all hell. And so you'd mentioned this mea culpa piece where, you know, they said, okay, well, we, we, don't, we don't really, you know, we didn't know we might have messed up, but oh, oh, it was because we didn't understand the gut bacteria. So there, there's our, yeah. our, um, our alibi. But how much political lobbying and um, kind of other invisible hand pieces were involved in this? Because you know, the, the sugar industry uh, was very active in making sure that their products were still selling. And this is actually, it's funny, one of the things that prompted me to do this book was when I was doing my earlier books, and they were pretty dense investigations. You can kind of feel the influence of the sugar industry and some of the decisions that are made in the 60s, 70s, and 80s without actually seeing it. So it's like feeling the influence of a planet or a, you know, the, uh, an exoplanet around another star because mm -hmm. you see that the star's Gravity's, uh, gravitational pull is tugged. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So... Um, as it turns out, and, and here I just got lucky as a journalist, I was giving a lecture at a bookstore in Colorado and my last book came out and a woman came up to me who's a, a very 
sort of a stunningly smart dentist with an MBA who said she had read my first book and decided to investigate the sugar industry on her own. She was Because she was a dentist, she was stunned. She had gone to a diabetes meeting, and they were talking about the problem with uh, decayed teeth and diabetes, and the, the speaker said, we have no idea what the connection is. We have no idea what the cause is. And she was so stunned by this that she decided she was going to investigate the sugar industry. And she said she had found archives from... Um, defunct sugar industry. So the sugar manufacturers had gone out of business. They'd just taken all their paperwork, their archives, given it to a local university in Colorado. She tracked it down. The first, her name is Kristen Kern. She's now at UC San Francisco doing research. Um, and she found a big book. that the, big, the first box she looked at was sort of top secret, you know, classified sugar, confidential sugar industry documents. <laughs> and lo and behold, there was a story in these documents of how the sugar industry in the 60s and 70s, when people started saying, hey, particularly this British nutritionist, John Yudkin, um, sugar causes looks like it causes heart disease. It causes this cluster of metabolic disorders. A lot of physicians started to believe that sugar causes diabetes, and the sugar industry had to do something about it. They felt their their lifeblood was being attacked, and it was the bulk of the, it was. But the problem, the issue is that 99% of the nutrition community thought the problem was dietary fat. So all the sugar industry had to do was hire the people who thought it was fat, which included all the other influential nutritionists. And I mean, these guys, some of them had some real egos, so they were very happy to bash the sugar. The people who blamed it on sugar would, you know, get bashed by the people who blamed it on fat. And, and sugar this is for diabetes, mind you. We're not even talking about heart disease. We're talking about diabetes. This is heart disease and diabetes. Okay. So Yudkin, the British nutrition, he was the most influential British nutritionist. Actually, his graduate work was used by... Uh, uh, forget if it was Manot or Jacob, a French biochemist, the, the basis for the work that won him the Nobel Prize, this Frenchman. Um, Yudkin was very smart, very talented, good scientist, founded the first dedicated department of nutrition in the UK and said, look, it's just sugar is the prime suspect. And we do all these experiments in animals and humans. We could demonstrate that sugar consumption causes virtually every one of these metabolic abnormalities that we now know of as part of metabolic syndrome. He also said clearly heart disease, you know, the, the American community was beginning to think of heart disease as a cholesterol dysfunction issue. It's sort of your LDL cholesterol or your total cholesterol is high. That's what gives you heart disease. And Yudkin said, this is crazy. People with heart disease have like virtually everything you measure is disturbed. So you measure triglycerides, it's disturbed. Blood pressure, it's disturbed. You know, this, that. It's clearly a whole slew of things. And all of those things can be caused by sugar consumption. So the people who were arguing was fat in the U.S., primarily this University of Minnesota nutritionist named Ansel Keys, they attacked Yudkin. He attacked Yodkin. Keyes had been funded by the sugar industry since the 1940s. I think he legitimately believed fat was the problem, but he also had a reason to believe sugar wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, so they just went back and forth. And meanwhile, the sugar industry orchestrated this very careful public relations plan that was documented in these documents that my colleague Kristen found. You know, we're going to 
hire these people to put together this report. This report then goes to the FDA when they're deciding whether or not sugar should be generally recognized as safe. We're going to take this high. The head of the Harvard Nutrition Department was their sort of main guy. They paid him, I don't know what the numbers are, but he hundreds of thousands of dollars went to his department at Harvard and they would use this fellow Fred Stair to do their TV appearances and radio appearances and when you had this you know Harvard authority saying sugar's harmless it's all about calories people tended to believe it by the 1980s they had turned this idea that sugar causes is a fundamental cause of obesity and diabetes and heart disease into quackery and I had researchers tell me that if they studied it in the 80s, they would be accused of being just like Yudkin. And the implication was if you wanted a viable career, you did not want to be just like Yudkin. And then, yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's an amazing story. I think they set back research by about a quarter of a century. So today we're finally thinking about doing studies that should have been done in the early 1980s or late 1970s, and all because of this public relations campaign. Science for hire, huh? (sighs) That's unbelievable. And and so, okay, we're we're shaking off this hangover. Um, These guys had a pretty good run at it. They, you know, convinced us through our experts that, you know, to look away. And so now, you know, our eyes are back on sugar. And what do we know? We know that it does cause diabetes. We know that it does cause the dental caries. Uh, we're suspecting that it's leading to the heart disease um, down, downstream. What else? I mean, what are, what are the other kind of fallout diseases that we're seeing with it? Well, again, it's funny. Having written this book, I'm going to conditionalize this a little bit. We, I'm arguing that it's the prime suspect for diabetes, obesity, basically for insulin resistance. And once you're insulin resistant, then next steps are diabetes, obesity, heart disease. Cancer, most cancers are insulin resistant conditions. And there's a lot of evidence that the upregulation of insulin and insulin signaling and a uh, uh, kindred hormone called insulin-like growth factor and high levels of blood sugar basically fuel cancer growth and metastases. So when I got into this business, I never thought I would, I was very critical and skeptical. I like to think I still am. I never thought I would say something like, you know, sugar causes cancer. But you can make an argument that sugar should be the prime dietary. I make the argument that sugar should be the prime dietary suspect. If it causes insulin resistance, it's driving cancer growth. And if we didn't have sugars in our diets, cancer would be a much less common disease. Um, Alzheimer's is another disease which is very closely tied to insulin dynamics and insulin resistance. It's very hard to make any statements whatsoever about how common Alzheimer's would have been in other populations or, uh, you know, older populations because both cancer and Alzheimer's are so age-related. The longer we live, the more you're going to get. But part of this if-then problem, if sugar causes insulin resistance, then it's going to increase the prevalence of dementia of some kind in populations, and that's going to be diagnosed, if nothing else, as Alzheimer's. 
What about like the Okinawan popula population? I mean, these guys, these guys are known for their longevity and I'm assuming they're having more traditional diets. So are we seeing the same incidence of Alzheimer's say on Okinawa or some of these other kind of micro populations that are kind of under that lens? Um, yeah, you know. and that's a good, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but it would be it would be worthwhile seeing. I mean, often what we're doing is comparing. I mean, that would be the, the natural place to look. The problem with the Okinawan diet, it, it it too has finally become westernized. So my understanding is younger generations, you're seeing obesity manifests itself, and you'll probably see decreases, likely see decreases in longevity with that. But mm. that would be an ideal place to look. Mm. So we have this addictive, addictive substance that um, is driving a lot of this insulin resistance, if not, you know, is the, the major culprit in this insulin resistance. Uh, you know, Mark Hyman speaks uh, very uh, passionately about how addictive it is. Um, is that something that you have looked at in the research as well for this book? I did look at the research. The first chapter of the book is called Drug or Food because I want people, when I get into the history and how sugar spread around the world and saturated the culture after culture after culture, I want people thinking in terms of is this a food we're seeing spreading or a drug we're seeing spreading because uh, many of the substances that came out of the first world became the basis of commerce, a sort of you know, uh, uh, oil of the 17th, 18th century were these drug foods, as Sidney Mintz put it. So as we've talked about, you know, rum, alcohol, caffeine, chocolate, uh, sugar. Opi opium a little later. The, <laughs> opium a little later. The, um, it's very little research. Again, it's fascinating because it, <laughs> you weren't, supposed to care about sugar. To think that sugar was deleterious was to be a quack. So there was these arguments that sugar caused uh, attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity, which is interesting. I would say beyond a shadow of a doubt because I'm a parent, but yet the research actually in the 80s was pretty good and it seemed to refute that hypothesis, although I could imagine how it missed it. Um, so you have like three groups in the world looking at the possibility that sugar is addictive. There's a group at Princeton which, um, you know, really didn't get the biochemistry, didn't quite understand what they were studying. There are a lot of people who studied sugar and literally didn't know what they were studying or talking about. There's a group in France, a French researcher who, if you believe his research, he addicted uh, rats and mice to cocaine or heroin. And they would self-administer it so they can give themselves like a daily bolus of their drug of choice. And then he would offer them sugar. And they would have a certain amount of time to decide between sugar and the drug. And once they decided, that was it. They were trapped. So if they decided sugar, they could no longer go back to the cocaine or the heroin. And um, these animals shifted from a cocaine addiction to a sugar addiction and like two days. So heroin took them a little longer to decide before they locked in on sugar. So at least rats and mice, we know even once addicted to these very powerful drugs, prefer sugar. Um, sugar. Uh, you know, my feeling, if you have kids, you don't need science to tell you it's addictive. And you don't need science to tell you it's addictive in a different way than nicotine or caffeine or alcohol. I mean, I think they're all 
slightly addictive. I think one of the problems the addiction researchers do is they try to stick it in the same box. When A, it's clearly a nutrient. But I have a friend, a wonderful journalist, who wrote a beautiful book called 1493 about the spread of um, foods and uh, plants around the world after Columbus discovered America. And the way he put it in that book, he said, scientists debate amongst themselves uh, whether sugar is an addictive substance or people just act like it is. <laughs> and I think it's so clear that we act like it is that it's some kind of technical scientific, uh, you know, check off in a checkbox isn't actually necessary. Yep. And, and being addictive, then it starts to open us up to a very different kind of moral conversation um, when we start looking at how this is put in front of children at such an early age. Well, this is what's so interesting. I had come up, I'm a big fan of thought experiments, Gedanken experiments, kind of this physics background. And I'd come up with this thought experiment where I said, imagine if we discovered a drug that made people feel happy for, you know, anywhere from 10 minutes to a half hour that could be given to children, infants, babies even, without any serious deleterious consequences. There's no like shaking or stuttering or respiratory issues. You can't overdose them. You know, you can't kill them with it. And the long-term consequences take 20, 30, 40 years to manifest. So by the time they manifest, you can't actually tie them back to the drug use. How long would it take, as soon as mothers realize that they could take a crying infant and give it a little taste of this substance and it'll stop crying, what's the next step? It's mm. like we give it to kids on their birthday to make them happy. We give it to kids to reward them for a good soccer game when the kids are being pissy or we want to take them to the, we got to do some shopping and they're going to have to <clears throat> go through the supermarket with us. We're going to promise them some some of the drug, right? Mm -hmm. And pretty soon you could imagine a scenario where it's everywhere and no party, no celebration, no holiday, no get together, no dinner, no manifestation of love and companionship and affection is complete without using this drug. You know, grandmothers, the kids are going to get dropped at grandmother's house. What's a grandmother going to do to make sure the kids are happy? Well, bake them cookies, give them lemonade and hot chocolate. I mean, it's always, you know, it becomes the way we communicate happiness and love. And then when people like me come along every 10 or 20 or 50 years and say this stuff's killing us, you're going to go like, oh, get out of here. Everyone, first of all, everyone does it. Right. And second of all, what is life without you telling me I'm not supposed to give my kid a birthday cake on his birthday? Yeah. I mean, Christmas is Sacrilege. coming. Can't I Sacrilege. Out? Yeah. Sacrilege. Can I put out cookies for Santa Claus? Yeah. What about the candy canes? You know, so just to uh, I, my original title for this book was Stealing Christmas. The case against sugar and then my editors thought and it's true some people didn't get the grinch mm. analogy um illusion not analogy with the stealing christmas but to do what this book does is to say i want to take away all your pleasure all your yeah. joy what's left you can't yeah. drink you can't smoke 
you know, we can't shoot up what's left if not sugar. Well, that's it. You know, what's funny is I have a, a number, hundreds and hundreds of my students that have come off of caffeine and they, at first it's like, you know, it's like Char Charlton Heston clinching with his cold hands, you know, it's like you can't, like I won't function without this. And within a week or two, they have more energy, their mood is more stable, and they are craving less sugar. And you start to look at sugar and caffeine and the drugs that have fueled right. the American and Western empires. Um, and you start looking at our psychological way of being and our time compression and all the things that lead to this stress and this, this need to constantly produce and all these things. It's like there, there are some ties that may be inextricably linked with our uh, brain state and our consciousness that are, you know, basically fed by these substances. So it's a, it's a really heavy thing. Like you're not, you're not just saying, um, you know, something that is lightly taken, right? You're taking away yeah. someone's addictive lifeline and you, like everything about you changes when you take away your high octane, you know, high interest credit card in a lot of ways. Well, this is it. I mean, again, it's, it's your source of pleasure, right? In the last chapter in the book, I discuss the concept of moderation and how much is still too much and the nature, you know, what it takes to quit if you're going to do it. And I really think my, well, it's undeniably my thoughts on it are informed. I haven't been a smoker. Mm -hmm. So when I was a cigarette smoker, uh, stupidly in my youth, uh, every aspect of my life was, um, basically, uh, modulated through nicotine so you wake up in the morning you have a cigarette you eat breakfast you have a cigarette you go for a walk you walk to work you have a cigarette you eat lunch you have a cigarette you have sex you have a cigarette you exercise you, you have a cigarette <laughs> no. you, you know it's just you there's nothing you do in life in between each course of a restaurant back in the day when you could smoke in restaurants you would have cigarettes and you can't imagine life without it you just can't imagine. It is so integrated into all your, not, both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. The way you buffer unpleasant experiences to smoke. You have an argument with your girlfriend, you have a cigarette. You have a great time with your girlfriend, you have a cigarette. Nicotine just becomes a completely so integrated into your emotional states. And then you try to quit. I tried to quit every day for 20 years. Sometimes I succeeded for a couple months few times I succeeded for a year. Finally, I succeeded for 16 so far. Um, the first three weeks are miserable. They're hell. It's nothing but cigarette withdrawal. You could think about it. Don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. The first three months, I, once I got used to this phenomenon after failed experience, I would warn my friends that I'm probably going to alienate them by being short-tempered, cranky, angry, over-responding to perceived slights. The first year is just general unhappiness. And then you get to the point where you can't imagine you ever smoked. Mm -hmm. You just can't imagine. And you can't imagine going back to it, and you can't imagine why other people smoke. And you can't imagine how this thing had its control over your intellect, your emotions, everything you did and everything you were. And I believe the same thing's true about sugar. But if you don't get to that point, you'll never know. In my experience, it happens much quicker than a year, thankfully. Um, you know, people, you know, you kick and scream for about a week or two and then things start to get better and, and you start to feel Well, that feel could be better. sugar. 
sugar. Nicotine. No, no, nicot no nic nicotine's yeah. a different demon. Yeah, absolutely. We, we actually have a question from a uh, studio audience, or not studio audience, our Facebook audience, uh, Sean. Yeah. So um, this one's from Charlotte. So it's a, regarding addiction. Are some people more addicted to sugar um, than others? Like she's thinking about alcoholics and how they can not drink for a bit, but only have one drink and then be back on the wagon. So is sugar kind of the same thing where you can only have sugar once in a while and still be able to or bright lining yeah it. exactly yeah. so the question is uh, are some people more uh do, do people have more of a proclivity to sugar addiction than others uh do we do we even know this yet well again this is one of these things that i think is clear from just observation you don't need sometimes people think you need fancy science for everything um my wife can order dessert at the end of a meal my wife can smoke two cigarettes a month and not be a cigarette addict, whereas I can't. Um, she can have dessert at the end of the meal. She'll have two bites and push it aside, and she's done. Never think, won't think about it again. I, I won't order dessert. I'll have a bite of hers, and then I'm locked into the dessert like it's a heroin needle Finish lying on the it. table, and I'm a heroin <laughs> addict. Yeah, and until I can get the waitress to take it away, I am, you know, dis debating whether or not to binge. And, you know, so clearly people have different. Uh, you know, it just affects us all differently. I felt the same way about alcohol when I um, used to, when I was in college, I used to bounce in Irish bars in Boston and the kids I bounced with metabolized alcohol differently than I did. Mm -hmm. They had two drinks and they wanted to party and fight all night long and I had two drinks and I wanted to go home and go to sleep. You know, it's just so clearly we metabolize these things differently. They have different effects on our brains and they have different effects on our level of craving. Yeah. Um, what bugs me are the people who are so, they're lean, they can eat sugar in moderation, and they assume this is somehow meaningful or true of everyone. Right, right. And getting them to understand that it's not is the half the battle sometimes. Yeah. Well, that's just it. I mean, you, you know, what we know is our own experience of that, and it's really hard, and that's where empathy comes in. You have to understand that you, yeah. your experience of reality isn't necessarily synonymous with the guy right next to you, and so you know, we know that sugar has all these issues. It might not work the same. I mean, some people look, you know, they, they taste alcohol, and they're an alcoholic and they, they can never right. go back. Other people drink every night and, it, and they don't have a problem. So, you know, I think it's, it is very case dependent. Listen, I, I love uh, the tone and the, just the kind of really calm nature that you have in, in how you carry yourself with this. Uh, you've obviously been at this for a very long time. You've done a lot of research. The book is called The Case Against Sugar. Uh, Gary Taub is gonna put it up right here. Uh, and um, it is, thick and it's filled with information. Uh, you've been doing a lot of research for a very long time, so I thank you for that. Um, and uh, yeah, man, keep up the good work with what you're doing. I, I really enjoy um, talking to you. I think that you have you know, read a lot of books and uh, have spent a, a fair amount of time uh, critically looking at stuff. And, and it's nice to, you know, a lot of people have a dog in the race and it's sure. hard because you're always wondering where their agenda is, is gonna come in. And so I'm glad you just looked at this stuff. Well, thanks. And, and the funny thing is you do your, one of the problems with me doing the kind of reporting I do is you, you do the reporting until you eventually decide what the truth is, or right. most likely, and then you become biased. Yeah. So I definitely have a bias. Sure. 
Um, and that's why over and over again in this book, I, you know, I acknowledge my bias. I say, look, but this is what I think is true. And this is, should be our, our baseline hypothesis that we should have to right. refute before we move to something more complex or different entirely. But, you know, there, there are, it's hard to underestimate how uh, substandard the nutrition obesity research has been for the past century. And we could do three more shows discussing the reasons why that's true, if it's true. Um, and, you know, it just needed, I felt somebody had to just sort of explain, lay out what I think, what the, what the discussion should be about, what the the evidence really may or may not show. So I appreciate that that it's getting across, and that the tone isn't uh, too shrill or too zealous. It's a, well, and it's almost impossible to not develop a bias after looking at a lot of overwhelming right. evidence. So, you know, or maybe, maybe the sugar industry will start sponsoring you, and you'll change your bias. <laughs> like our friends at Harvard. Uh, no, I mean, that, that's really it, is, you know, science has been bought in a lot of ways, and so that needs to be exposed, because if we're, you know, putting it up on such a, a high pedestal, then true science looks at data and uh, is unbiased and, and you, know, you know, has overwhelming evidence to substantiate a, a position after, you know, much research. And so, you know, we're, we're coming out of a dark time, and so let's just shake it off and move on. And so now we know what we know about sugar. And thanks to you and, you know, a lot of the people that have been doing this work, uh, you know, it's, it's becoming more and more clear that, you know, Christmas is going to look different next year. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how long it takes for uh, this message to really sink in. That's it. So. Thank you so much. Uh, let me know what you think. This is Dr. Pedram Shojai, The Urban Monk. Check out The Urban Monk Academy. Uh, we are doing all kinds of interesting things in the coming year. Uh, more meditation uh, practices, uh, some retreats. So just go on to theurbanmonk.com and check it out and let me know what you think. And let's talk about sugar in the chat threads. I'll see you next time.